Welcome to the 21st Century Church podcast. Please check out our website at 21stcenturychurch.co.uk for more information. We'd love to connect with you, so head over to our Facebook and Instagram pages. Enjoy this message from our senior pastor, Stefan Jones. Yeah, there's... I feel like all the parents in the room don't tell you how bad the torture of sleep deprivation is. And right now you're thinking it's hilarious to see someone else suffer what you suffered. The, if you're not a parent, I, I mean, it's still, I'm telling myself God's word, children are a blessing from the Lord, they're a blessing from the Lord, but beware of the sleep deprivation. It's like a weird torture. But, uh, but I am a father for the first time and he's two and a half weeks old and he's already... He's already been worshipped as the Messiah, which was very strange this morning. But one of the things that I'm, I'm looking forward to, you know, I, I can't really tell him at the moment, is telling my son stories about his heritage. And because he's got a, quite a fun heritage. He's got the Welsh heritage. But if you don't know me, my wife is Portuguese. So that means he's half Portuguese. He's got that as well. And so I've been reading up on my Portuguese history, getting it ready, and I've got the basics, the, the Reconquest, Vasco da Gama, Nando's, Ronaldo, all the essentials, everything you need to know about Portugal, and, uh, and I think the contrast between his bloodlines are quite funny as well, so on one side, he's going to be Josiah, son of Marlene, so, uh, daughter of, I'm never going to pronounce this right, Joaquim, son of Manuel, son of... Manuel. So that's a, that's a great side he's got on his, his Portuguese side. There's also a Jose Baptiste as an ancestor as well, which is fascinating. But I also like how that contrasts with the Welsh side, because the Welsh side is something, you know, a lot more down to earth, because he'll be Josiah, son of Stefan, son of Geraint, son of Alwyn, Geraint. Son of Alwyn. Now, Alwyn has got that weird Welsh thing where a lot of you probably already have it, but it's not your real first name. His real first name, my grandfather, is David Alwyn Jones. So we'll say, we'll say son of David. And he is a son of David. Who is a son of David? <laughs> who is also a son of David? <laughs> Going back to 1791, there are four die Jones in a row in his bloodline. So I love that he's got these die Joneses and he's got these Manuels all coming together into one baby boy. And it's, uh, it's pretty amazing. And you know, your lineage, it says a lot about you. Okay, so you can guess from mine that I'm a Cumro Cumrag, I'm a Welsh speaker, and uh, you can gather from my wife that she is something more exotic. I grew up in chapel, she was baptised into the Roman Catholic Church. I grew up in the Welsh cold and rain, she grew up in the sun and the heat. I grew up on Sunday dinners, she grew up on rice and pretty pretty chicken. And my son will grow up eating both, hopefully. And a part of who you are, that's the worst thing to say, a part of who you are is rooted in the area. You know, I am a third generation preacher from Trinity, a second generation pastor. One of my ancestors was a, a worship leader in Trinity in the height of the chapel age, and he was killed in a mining accident under Furness rugby pitch. Part of who I am is rooted in this area. It's part of who I am. It's part of my identity. And especially around Remembrance Sunday. Maybe you do this as well, where we remember those who fought in, in the Great War and the Second World War, and we remember relatives who did that. And we can be kind of proud of them. And I've got one great-grandfather who was, he was in the, one of the waves in D-Day, and he was part of the team that liberated Belson. 
I've got another great-grandfather, and his surname is Constable, Frank Constable. And he was basically sunk in the early years of the war on a ship and was the sole survivor, picked up by the Nazis, spent the war in a, constant, in a prison of war camp. Now, those are heroic stories to me. I'm proud of my great-grandfathers for that, although I never met either one of them. Now, the fact I said Constable would, you know, okay, there's English ancestry as well there, that I'm partly English, and so I'm looking forward to the Gavin and Stacey Christmas special because I feel like I'm watching my own family interact when I watch it. But my point of all these stories is this. Although you can be proud of your lineage and you can be proud of all these things, I didn't do anything for them. It's a little bit strange that be like, you know, we can maybe feel proud of an ancestor. It seems silly because I didn't achieve any of this. Yet, although I didn't achieve it, a huge part of who I am, and who my son Josiah will be, and who you are, is inherited. It's inherited. An inheritance that I see as a blessing, but it's based on what someone else did for me. And as I've been speaking, you may be reflecting on your own genealogy, on your family tree. And I'm saying this because at Christmas time, this is a time when we do spend time with our family members. Maybe because at Christmas time you've been inspired to reread the Christmas story. And a family tree is key to knowing the Christmas story. Because if you open the New Testament, page one, book of Matthew, what do you see straight away? A genealogy. That seems a bit pointless to us. Why is this the way that the New Testament starts? But it's because it says a lot. It says a lot about Jesus a lot about Christmas, and a lot about what it means to be part of God's family. And the emphasis, the one big thing that I want you to take away is this. Christmas is good news, not good advice. Christmas is good news, not good advice. There's a difference between the two. The main point isn't to draw inspiration from Mary, isn't to be think, looking at the shepherds and see five principles for a better life. Now we can see as a, in a secondary sense that maybe there's lessons to be learned, but Christianity is not primarily about self-improvement. It has implications for how you live, but it's not its essence. The essence is not about what you have to do, it's about what's already been done for you. It's news. So my title for this message is The Declaration of Christmas, the declaration of Christmas. And the declaration is that it's good news, not good advice. So we're going to read extracts from the genealogy, the opening of the book of Matthew. And just go with me, okay, because it, it, it will all make sense. And we'll delve into three things that Christmas proclaims to be good news. Okay, so beginning of the New Testament. Here we go. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah whose mother was Tamar, let's skip ahead, Salmon, I mean that's a great name, Salmon the father of Boaz whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of King David, David the father of Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Solomon the father of Rehoboam, let's skip ahead, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, Ammon the father of Josiah, see, biblical name. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, skip again. 
Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, 14 to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Okay. To us, this seems really strange and a pointless bit of trivia. Why would you start off the Christmas story like that? But in the first century, in their world, Starting like this was very impressive. N.T. Wright, who is a professor and a theologian and and an expert in first century history, said this. This genealogy is the equivalent of a roll of drums, a fanfare of trumpets, a town crier calling for attention. Any first century Jew will find this family tree both impressive and compelling. There's some showstoppers here. Abraham, Jacob, David. King David, only a few in the first century could trace a line through King David. You know, one of my friends, he's a descendant of King Charles II. I think that's pretty cool. He's also a descendant of the Duke of Wellington, which I also think is pretty cool. I don't think I have any of them, but I've got the Die Joneses. But the Christmas story begins by telling us, Jesus is a direct descendant of King David, of the true Davidic lineage from Solomon to the kings of Judah. And I say that because the first way we see that Christmas is good news, not good advice, is this. Christmas proclaims that the rightful king has come. Christmas proclaims that the rightful king has come. Now, since I was 11 years old, I've always loved The Lord of the Rings, and I actually read the book, The Fellowship of the Ring, before seeing the films, and so, and I still think the books are better than the films, if any of the us book nerds would agree, but I love that, and something I want for Christmas, because when I moved around to Australia, my siblings just ransacked all my stuff, so I don't know where my Lord of the Rings copies are now, I'm pretty sure they're in Highwood's house, but I've got on my Christmas lift a nice new illustrated copy of Lord of the Rings that I've been hinting towards my wife, because I haven't read it in ages, and one of the things I want to do with Josiah when he's a little bit older is actually something my preaching teacher, Robert Ferguson, told me he did with his kids. Because when he read the Lord of the Rings to them, what he did was, this is a great idea, he got a map of Middle Earth, and every night as they would read and the fellowship would continue, they had the pins of the fellowship, and they would move it as they went through the story, which I just think that's awesome. So some of you don't care at all, but some of us are thinking that's an amazing idea. But this is the thing. Christmas isn't like that. It's not once upon a time. It's not a beautiful story that never happened but teaches us so much. There is no moral of the story to the nativity. It begins, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. Tim Keller knows what Matthew was saying is this. What Jesus Christ is and does is grounded in history. Jesus is not a metaphor. He is real. This happened. Now, this should be Christmas 101, but sadly, it still needs saying. There was a study done recently in England asking children, where was Jesus born? And the most popular answer was the North Pole. Now, that is a depressing indictment on our educational system when it comes to Christianity. And actually, surveys show that a high percentage of Brits still think that Jesus Christ is not a historical figure, was just a legend. When most, not most, all serious ancient history scholars would tell you that's not the case. 
He is a real historical figure. The Gospels are grounded in reality. They are historical documents. This happened. No serious academic historian doubts this, whatever their religious beliefs. He was a person who really lived, who really died, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate in the, under the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Agnostic historian Tom Holland has released a new book, which is absolutely amazing. And he, it's called Dominion, all about how Christianity shaped the Western mind, whether you're an atheist or not. And he discusses the crucifixion of Jesus, and he notes, there is no reason to doubt the essentials of this narrative. Even the most skeptical historian has tended to accept them. What you need to know about Christmas is that this is good news about something that happened. Not a beautiful story that didn't happen, but it's got nice morals for us. This happened. Herod the Great is a real historical figure. He's not a made-up pantomime villain. Julius Caesar made his grandfather ruler by Roman Grant in 55 BC. Augustus Caesar made him the king of the Jews. He was murderous and temperamental. He killed one of his own wives, who was one of ten. He killed some of his own children in paranoia. But Black's Bible Dictionary notes that none of the Herods were Jews by blood. Now, why well, we need to know this is because Jesus Christ, then Christ means king, okay? It's a title, King Jesus. And so, to begin the New Testament under the reign of Herod the Great by saying that the true Davidic king has come was a dangerous political statement. Because if Jesus is the true king, Herod is not. There's a danger to it. At the time of Jesus' birth, Augustus Caesar had turned the Roman Republic into a Roman Empire. Rome famously had no king, so instead there could be no king. He kind of had this emperor title, but one of the things you had to say was Caesar Kyrios. If you wanted to be a Roman citizen and keep your life, and that meant Caesar is Lord. What was the statement in the early Christian faith that you had to say in becoming a Christian? Jesus is Lord. Jesus, Kyrios. It's a dangerous, shocking statement because if Jesus is king and Jesus is Lord, then Herod is not and Caesar is not and I am not. None of us are. All others are dethroned as pretenders. See, if Christmas was about advice, it would be telling us to do something, to make it happen. But Christmas is good news that something's been done. The true king has come. All you need to do is respond. See, imagine an army was coming to invade us now. We'd have to get planning. We'd have to get on it. What are we going to do? What defenses are we going to raise? But if a king intercepts the army and beats them on your behalf, now what you need to do is not good advice. What you do is you respond. You respond to what the king has already done. It's now news. In the same way, Christmas declares the king has come. And he's come to take on darkness and sickness and evil and death for us. We don't save ourselves. He saves us. What was required of us is to respond to something that happened in real history that the king has come. Christmas is good news. Not good advice. There's a difference. The second thing that it proclaims is this. Christmas proclaims that all are included. That all are included. Now, if you re-look at verses 3, 5, and 6 here, if you know your Old Testament, you're going to see these shocking statements. Because named in the list are 
Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, remember that one. Simon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, remember that one. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Notice that he's only naming a few mothers, so why is he breaking the pattern here? There's a reason. Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of King David, David is the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. So what's Matthew doing here? Why, Why is he broken the pattern to tell us these specific women? Well, all of them are family members that you probably wouldn't want people to know about. Now, apparently way back on my grandmother's side, it is said that a family member went to Chicago, shot someone, and ran away to come back here. Now, if my grandmother was here and heard that I told you that, she would be horrified. (laughs) Absolutely horrified. It's one of those things where you whisper in the family, oh, there was a family member. It happened over 100 years ago, so I feel it's pretty safe to say it now, but it's something that's looked back on with shame in the family. Now, even today, we've all got that relative. Don't point at them that if, if we're honest, that no one knew we were related, we wouldn't flag it up, okay? We would leave it be, you know? All of us, my brother-in-law, Josh, is a bit like that for me. He's, uh, he's someone who, he lives in Shnetri and has lived in Shnetri for most of his life, yet he persistently, he persistently, unrepentedly still supports the Ospreys. What is that about? Shameful. It is absolutely shameful. But this list, okay, it's, quite, it's even worse than Josh. It's something on another level, okay? Because in this, in this day and age, you know, in that time, the genealogy was like your resume. So, you know, you would cut bits out that you didn't like. Herod the Great actually cut out some of his own ancestors. But here, the, one of the commentators notes that Matthew is selecting these people for your attention. Now, why? Well, they're outsiders. They're people you won't want to know about. In, in what way? Well, firstly... They're gender outsiders because they were women in that era, which was incredibly patriarchal. Secondly, they were racial outsiders because all four were non-Jews. And thirdly, they were moral outsiders like Josh, but worse. (laughs) Because Tim Keller notes that these people are involved in some of the most sordid, nasty, and immoral incidents in the Bible. Tamar's story For more details, see Genesis 38. She tricks her father-in-law into sleeping with her. A case of incest, clearly against God's law. But Matthew wants you to know the Messiah came from that dysfunctional family. Gives us all hope, doesn't it? Rahab was not just a Canaanite. She was a prostitute. Now, the story ends well, yes, but it's hardly something you'd flag up in the family tree. But Matthew wants you to know Rahab, an ex-prostitute, was one of Jesus' ancestors. Most shocking is verse 6. Now, most people, they read King David. This is, this is the bragging point. I mean, this is pretty awesome. But Matthew notes that Jesus is from Solomon's line. And Solomon's mother was Bathsheba, but he puts in Uriah's wife. Why Uriah's wife? Well, Uriah was one of the mighty men who risked everything to protect David when he was a fugitive from King Saul. But actually, he's drawing attention here, Matthew, to one of the most shameful moments in the whole Bible, where a lustful and greedy King David sees Bathsheba bathing, Uriah's wife, and Uriah's way on military campaign fighting David's wars. And he takes Bathsheba, brings her to him, sleeps with her, gets her pregnant. He panics, so he brings Uriah back from the front line, hoping that as he'd come home, he'd go and sleep with his wife, and so the crime was covered up, but Uriah was so loyal to David that he slept outside his own palace, saying, I'm not going to go back to my wife while the war is still on. 
And so David sends him back and tells his commander, put him in a place where it's a suicide mission, where you know that he will die. And so Uriah dies on purpose to cover up David's crime. It's one of the worst incidents in the whole Bible. It's a horrible story. And Matthew wants you to know, Jesus came from this lineage. From a lineage of adulterers, incestuous relationships, prostitutes, and murderers. Some of you are feeling a lot better right now <laughs> compared to that. That's not something you'd flag up. What's Matthew's point? It's this. Even people who respectable opinion and culture would exclude are not excluded. Even people who would be excluded by God's law can be brought into God's own family. Pedigree doesn't matter. Neither does your sins. Even if you've killed someone, if you repent and believe in Jesus, his grace can forgive your sin. And in a society which is increasingly disbelieve, just doesn't believe in forgiveness anymore because if you did one thing wrong and it goes on the internet, then you'll be hounded out of your job forever and ever. But this is not the gospel. The gospel, there is always forgiveness and grace found in Jesus. See, Christmas is good news. It's not good advice. It proclaims that all are included. Outsiders are included, but also people you wouldn't think needs any grace. I mean, on the surface, look at King David. He has all the power credentials of the time. He was a male, and he was Jewish, and he was a king, and he was a successful warrior, but he's also only in by grace. His evil deeds are worse than the women's in the, lineage, in the lineage. See, Christmas says it's not the good people are in, but the bad people are out. Instead, it's everyone can come in by the grace of King Jesus. Everyone can come in by the grace of King Jesus. There is no one so good that they don't need forgiveness. And there is no one so bad that they can't receive it. The cross is the great leveler of humanity where we all stand equal at its foot. Equally sinful, but equally loved nonetheless. See, Christmas is good news, not good advice, not five steps to living a better life. It's what he has done for us. It proclaims that the king has come. It proclaims that we are all included and the keys can come up as I draw to a close. Thirdly and lastly, Christmas proclaims the beginning of a new heavenly kingdom. Now, I love that week, okay? I don't know if you're like me, between Christmas and New Year. I like that bit where it's all done, all the fuss is done, and we haven't gone back to work yet. We're just chilling around eating chocolate at crisps, whatever time of the day you want. It's, uh, and everything's quite calm, and watching Christmas movies, and I love that time. It's, it's a great chill-out time, but I also like New Year's Day. don't know if there's anyone else who likes that. I like New Year's Day because it's like, it feels fresh to me. I like the feeling of, this is the beginning of a whole new year. Fresh start, and I'm believing over 2020, that us, for us as a church as well, that this is going to be a year of promise, it's going to be a year of increase. I'm excited already for what 2020 is going to bring. But that sense of newness, of fresh start, is also found in the text. But it's maybe hidden away unless you speak biblical Greek. Because it starts off by saying, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. But the first two words of the entire New Testament in the original language, in the Greek, is this. 
Biblos Genesis. Biblos Genesis. That word Genesis coming there is suggestive of a new beginning and a new creation. There is a new start found in Jesus' break into human history. And woven into this itself, Matthew has weaved a message of fulfillment for us to see, for those with eyes to see. See, the lineage is organized precisely into six groups of seven. And it ends with Jesus as the first of a new seventh group. And that's a massive signal that all the layers of messianic prophecy have all been fulfilled. How? Right, go with me here, right? Because the number seven, it's, it's a powerful symbolic number to Jews. Three layers. Firstly, because God rested on the Sabbath. That's why we have Sundays off on the seventh day. That's part of the rhythm of life. That on the seventh day, we rest. And the Western world has adopted that from the Jews. The second thing we read here is that the Mosaic law said that every seven years, you were meant to leave the land to lie fallow, that it would replenish its nutrients. The land was meant to rest. The seventh year was a year of rest. And the third level, we read in Leviticus 25, how after seven periods of seven years, so the 49th year was the year of Jubilee. This was a once in a lifetime event. And in a Jubilee year, all slaves were freed. All financial debts were wiped clean. And everybody had the year off. That sounds like a brilliant year to me. <laughs> it was a once in a lifetime event. Imagine that. Next year's the Jubilee year. All my debts wiped clean. We're having a year off. What is that about? Why this crazy extravagance for this 49th year? Because the seventh seven, the Sabbath of Sabbaths, was to be the foretaste of the final glorious rest that we will have when God's kingdom comes in all its fullness and he renews the whole earth. It's still only a foretaste of what is to come. And so, when we read... Jesus as the beginning of the seventh group of sevens, we are to realize it's begun. Jesus is the Jubilee King. Jesus came to proclaim freedom for the captives, to set people free. He came to proclaim that the Jubilee year is beginning. What we're meant to hear when we read the first words of Jesus' ministry in Matthew 4, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. What we're meant to hear there is that means that the time of fulfillment, of rest and freedom, of justice and healing, of peace and of joy, of love and of hope that we long for, that our hearts longs for, that time is coming. It's begun. And although the fullness of it has yet to come. The fullness will come when the king returns for the second and final time. We can begin to taste it now. The apostle Paul famously writes in Galatians 5, verse 22 to 23, and this is something maybe sadly lacking in the UK in our culture and discourse these days, but we need it. Is that the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What Paul is saying is this, 
these things which are part of God's future kingdom can be a present reality for us now through the work of the Holy Spirit who indwells in us. St. Augustine noted as we draw nearer and nearer to God, we have some feeling and taste of the banquet we shall one day eagerly eat and drink. Now notice, this isn't blind optimism. It's not being delusional and telling yourself positive statements that you know aren't true. It's aligning your life with the truth and the promise of God's very word. That the kingdom of heaven has come. Christian hope is a certainty that it will come in all its fullness. That in the end, all will be well. If I can share personally with you, for me, 2019, apart from the birth of my son, has been a year of suffering. It's been a year of sickness. It's been a year of trial. It's been possibly the worst year of my life. And there's a verse that I printed out, and I stuck it onto the wall of my office to remind me through the day so that I would align my life to the promise of what Christmas means. It's Romans 12, verse 12, and it says this, after Paul has talked about the whole message of the gospel, this is one of his applications. In light of Christmas, in light of Jesus, in light of the new kingdom, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. Be joyful in hope, whatever the circumstance. Be patient in your affliction, knowing it will not last. And be faithful in prayer to your Father in heaven who loves you and has come for you. See, without Christmas, if we're all just here on our own and there is no God, there is no reason to suffer in joyful hope. You should despair. But that's not the truth. The truth of Christmas, the declaration of Christmas means that God's kingdom has come and is coming in all its fullness and in all its joy and whether I can see it or whether I can feel it, he is moving, he is working, his plan is coming and it releases me from stress and worry. It enables me to be patient in affliction and it enables me to be joyful in hope that the Jubilee King has come and is coming again with healing, joy, peace, rest, love, life, purpose, and it's for every single one of us. And that, friends, is good news. And a weight off my shoulders, because it's not what I have to do, it's what he's already done. We can sing with gusto, Christ the Savior is born. Not I need to do this. He's done it. So here's my application. How should we respond? Two things, two applications. Firstly, it's this. Sing with joy and gratitude this Christmas. Now, I know this sounds like elf because the best way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. But the truth is this. Christianity is unique as the singing religion. Other religions don't sing. It's not a part of what they do as worship. But Christianity and Judaism as well, it actually commands us in Scripture, sing to the Lord. It doesn't say, sing those creative people. It doesn't say, sing those people with a good voice. It doesn't say, sing those people in the front row. It says, all of us, sing to the Lord. Now, why singing? What does that achieve? Yeah, precisely. Singing's not going to help you build a better life. 
Singing is what you do in response to a victory. Singing is what you do when Wales have scored a try. Singing is what people do when a, a military army has won a great victory. Singing is not useful, but that's why we do it, because singing is a response to what someone else has done. And so this Christmas, if you're not someone who sings, and if in the carols you're someone who is one of those, you know, rogue people who just sits there, stands there with their mouth closed, sing. Let it out. Let it out, even if it's not what you naturally do. Sing. When you go in the car, when you're on the house, put carols on. Let your heart be filled with joy at the message of Christmas. Christ the Saviour is born. You know, when we were singing Arrival earlier, especially with having a new son, you know, that who is God that he would embrace a baby's mind? That, and all those lyrics that love has embraced our faith. I was crying just now, just singing, because I was so grateful for what God has done. And the second application I've got is this. Live in peace, because God's got it. Maybe you need to do what I did and take a key verse this is something the Bible commands us to do, by the way, to confess the word, to remind us of the truth, because we forget it so easily. Take a verse, maybe print it out, put it somewhere, remind yourself, this is the truth. That you don't have to make your life a success. God is in control. The king has come. You're part of his family. He's putting all things right. His peace is available now. I want to finish by leading us all in a prayer because ultimately the fact that Christmas is good news and not good advice also distinguishes Christianity from all other religions and ways of life. Other religions and even our secular society, it's all about do this, prove yourself. But Christianity doesn't say do this. It says believe this. Believe this. Respond to what he's already done. See, when we noted of our human lineages at the beginning, you don't do anything to deserve your inheritance. It's something that someone else has done for you and you receive, and so it is in the kingdom of God. Because when you become a Christian, the Bible says you become a child of God and you inherit the promises and blessings of God. You know, deep down, we all intuitively know that death is wrong and that we shouldn't lose our loved ones and that evil shouldn't triumph. And Christmas says, yes. You're on the right track. Trust that gut instinct. But it's just the beginning. Because the cross was to come. And even here in the Christmas account, the cross is foreshadowed. You know, where was Jesus, the king of all kings, born? He was born out in the cold and dark as an outsider in a stable or an inn. He was the king, but he was born into poverty. And in light of our sins, where do we deserve to be? Out in the cold and dark not a part of God's family. And yet that's where you find Jesus. He's the ultimate insider, a part of the Trinity. And yet he's born to an unmarried mother in a social time where that was not acceptable. At the end of his life, he died out in the cold and dark, stripped of all possessions. He died outside the city gate. He died crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The true king, Jesus, was enthroned on a cross. Why? He became poor so we could become rich. He died as an outsider, so we could be included. He bore our guilt, so we could be forgiven. He was thrown into spiritual darkness, so we could be brought into the warmth and light of the family of God, so we could join his family, be co-heirs with Christ. And the motive behind all of this, love. Love. 
because God is love. So wherever you are, whatever you've done this Christmas, I want you to know you're included. All of us here are included. What do you need to do? Nothing but respond to believe. Romans 10 puts it like this. If you declare with your mouth, now guys, this is a book of Romans to Roman peoples. This is a real statement. It's not just a fuzzy-duddy thing. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, he is the highest authority. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. What's required of us to join the family of God, to gain forgiveness of sins, eternal life, is to respond to what's already done for us, to the good news of Christmas. So let's all stand together, and let's pray to finish. And then we'll sing a carol, and we'll have coffee and all of that stuff. But if that's you right now, and you know you need to make your peace with God, that you don't know what I've been talking about, that you don't know that you're part of God's family, that you don't know that you have eternal life, that you don't know you have forgiveness of sins, that you don't have this peace, this joy, it's for you. He died for you. All you need to do is receive it tonight. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, we're going to pray this together, all of us in one loud voice. But if that's you right now, Make this your prayer for the first time and enter into the family of God tonight. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you for Christmas. I thank you that you entered this world, that you were born, and that you died, and that you were raised from the dead for me. I'm sorry for my sin and all of my mistakes. Forgive me and change me, and make me new. I thank you that I'm now a Christian, that I'm part of the family of God, that I have an incredible hope, an amazing joy, peace, purpose, forgiveness of sins, and a relationship with you. Help me to live in light of this, to love you, and to love others until I see you face to face. In Jesus' name. Amen. Come on, let's thank our God for all that he's done and his goodness in this place. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, this is what I want you to do. You've now joined the family of God. And so introduce yourself to your fellow brothers and sisters. Go and tell someone about it. We would love to give you a Bible and help you on your way. It is the best book you'll ever read. It will help you align your life, not with good advice, but with what God has already done for you, with wisdom, but with his truth. And uh, if I haven't have a chance to say it, if I don't see you until then, have a very Merry Christmas. We have every reason to rejoice. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from 21st Century Church. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd appreciate it if you could review and share it on social media. Remember to check us out at 21stCenturyChurch.co.uk for any more information. We'll see you next time.